0: Autism Through Cinema Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. The film discussed in today's episode was suggested to us by one of our listeners. Annalotta Pawley got in touch to suggest the satirical musical film True Stories, directed by Talking Head singer David Byrne. Annalotta also shared an article with us, written by Luis Attilio Franco, which considers this film as Byrne's search for autistic connection. There's a link to the article in the show notes. Huge thanks to Annalotta for bringing this film to our attention. As you'll hear... Alex, Janet and Ethan had a great time discussing it. We would also encourage more of our listeners to get in touch with suggestions for films we should cover. Just send us an email on cinemaautism@gmail.com at gmail.com with a brief overview of the film you've chosen and why it resonates as an exploration of the autistic way of being. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy our discussion of true stories. Same as it ever was
1: hello everybody and welcome to the autism cinema podcast my name is ethan lyon um, and today i'm very excited to say that we'll be discussing david burns true stories from 1986 i'm joined by our usual uh, co-hosts alex and janet uh and this is a film that was given to us by one of our um audience members they they emailed in and suggested it uh we will be giving the email address out at the end of this podcast if you would like to submit your own suggestions for a film for us to discuss but i was exceptionally pleased to discuss uh this week true stories as i said uh which is the only uh feature film directed by david byrne the lead singer and uh, mastermind arguably behind the 80s band talking heads so i'll start with um Janet, what did you think of this film? Had you seen it before um, before we were sort of given it by our by our audience?
2: Uh, no, I hadn't seen this. Although I am a, uh, a a fan of David Byrne and Talking Heads, I am um, old enough to have been a student in the eighties, and uh, David Byrne and Talking Heads were very influential for me in stylistically and in terms of music and so forth. So I think it was a really interesting opportunity to look back at at the band as well as as this film and its take on America. Um, I thought that it would have a kind of postmodern inflection from that era, which indeed it does. But I think there's something else. It's it's much more ambiguous um, around narratives of optimism and kind of warmth as well as as well as cynicism and an irony those are my thoughts at the beginning
1: those are very very interesting subjects that i also had thoughts on and we're going to get into that in a little bit so uh but i'll turn to alex now was this your first time with true stories and were you a talking heads fan beforehand
3: yeah i i mean i am a talking heads fan and anybody who isn't should be ashamed of themselves um I I mean I I knew the album Talking Heads quite well actually um and but I decided it wasn't my favorite out of their sort of oeuvre and I hadn't listened to it in about 10 years so it was quite an uncanny experience coming back to the film and and just sort of like echoes of music from my youth uh sort of like appearing in different forms in slightly off versions without David Byrne singing them um it was quite uh disorienting um but quite wonderful as well and i got very excited and listening to the album uh on repeat since then um yeah but in terms of the film i I wasn't really aware of uh well i knew it existed uh for some reason i didn't think it would appeal to me um when i was first aware of it i think it's because i didn't like the album as much as the others Um, So I never tracked it down, but I'm really glad I had the chance to really give it some time. Um, Yeah,
1: Wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, As for me, uh, I have known about The Talking Heads for a long time, thanks to my parents, who are both massive fans, particularly my dad. This film had occasionally appeared on my radar in terms of friends who are also on the spectrum recommending it to me in terms of a film which they felt was of an autistic aesthetic and that's a subject which i think we're going to delve into quite a lot today i certainly have a great deal of thought on the subject um yeah this was a uh, for those for those out there in listener land uh, you can't see but i have a huge smile on my face because uh this film while in places a little cheesy for me has so much joy and pleasure to it. And the process of coming up with some ideas about what to talk about was so enjoyable that uh, I just can't stop smiling. Um, And to be fair, I think Talking Heads in general does that to me. But first, what is True Stories? I think we should probably give that as a basis. Well, True Stories is a very loose narrative, uh, hosted, if you wish, by David Byrne, who is also the writer and director. About a fictional town in Texas called Virgil, which is celebrating its 150th anniversary. There is a specific name for the 150th anniversary, but I'll be honest, I can't say it properly. So if you want to, just listen to David Byrne saying it in his lovely, lovely voice. He travels into the town and interacts with a number of different uh, members of the community. Lewis, played by John Goodman, a permanent bachelor looking for love. Um, a the uh, the head of Varicorp, a electronics uh, microchip company, played by Sporting Gray, and his wife, and uh, a host of other unusual characters, including a woman who cannot tell the truth and a woman who cannot get out of bed. Uh, and that is basically the narrative. It's an extremely loose form of a narrative, and I was wondering. Uh if you guys had any thoughts on uh do you feel that that sort of meandering narrative uh was in itself quite autistic? It seems to be in places very diversionary. it seems to go off on tangents of its own accord, and um I certainly felt so, but I was wondering what you guys
3: thought okay so I think I thought of that topic in particular not necessarily linked to autism um I mean. There's, there's something I want to get out the way, which is that there's lots of sort of speculation about David Byrne's possible uh, neurodivergence, specifically autistic. Um, but he's never confirmed that. No one really knows for sure. It's not something I think he's very interested in talking to, talking about. Uh, certainly, I couldn't find any reports apart from lots of people speculating about it. But um in terms of the structure of the film, what was striking me? Um, so I think we, yeah, sorry. Um, to go back a step, maybe we should do, maybe we should decide amongst ourselves, do we, do we, uh, avoid talking about, you know, diagnosing someone we've not met or do we, um, acknowledge that there's a sort of popular groundswell of people who think this is a reasonable way to interpret, uh, David Byrne's sort of identity. What, what should we do with that in this discussion?
1: I think that's a really, really good point to bring up and thank you for bringing this up, Alex, because I because you very you stopped me from going off completely on my own tangent, as I was wont to do. In regards to Byrne, I've seen a couple of interviews and read a couple of articles which suggest that which in which he suggests that he feels he is either on the spectrum or just about on the spectrum. So, in some respects, yes, I think there is still a certain, but you're right, there is a grey level where there's an ambiguity there. And it is, I think, I think, I think, yeah, you're right, it is dangerous sometimes to, to over diagnose individuals who, you know, for, for whom autism was never really a concept. And I'm thinking especially of much older figures, uh, Victor and the Wild Child, for example, being. Uh, one that one that uh, I had to deal with, but for me, I do. For me, I do find. E- how do I phrase this? Even if he is not specifically autistic, the ways in which Byrne presents himself, the ways in which Byrne's film conducts itself, and the way that it is narratively and artfully formally developed, connects with me and my own sense of experience in such a strong way that I have to understand it as being autistic. So perhaps this is just me trying to cover my own backside in terms of like, I do think that Burner's autistic and I do want to accept him into the canon. But yes, you are right. It's very dangerous to think so assuredly of something in that front.
2: Yeah, just to add to that, I, I have read in several places that uh, Byrne saying he thought he probably was autistic, uh, but had not had a formal diagnosis. So I think from my point of view, uh, it seems in tune with his sense of himself to be discussing him as in all probability autistic. And he's he obviously um, feels quite positive about that. So it seems an affirmative thing to do.
3: Okay, well, I'm clearly just hadn't read the same article. So good on you guys for figuring that out. Um, But yeah, okay. so if I will carry on with my original point, which was that the structure of the film, uh, I mean, yes, I I, I was getting, you know, big time autistic vibes off David Byrne. um, But also um, the structure of the film felt so much like an album. It seemed like this sort of expanded concept album where we had these sort of vignettes where one topic is really focused on in this uh, incredible detail um, with all these sort of flourishes of information and, and sort of artistry. And then we sort of move on to something else and it's only very loosely connected around um, Lewis's sort of search for love really and David Burns sort of appreciation for um, Middle America. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess that the structure to me it wasn't necessarily something that sort of seemed to be an autistic aesthetic. But as I say this, I can totally see what you're talking about, Ethan. So,
1: yeah. I mean, as you, as you've been saying that, I absolutely agree. It does feel like an album. When do you think about it? It's, it's a various selection of small songs. And that's actually something really interesting I wanted to talk about as well, which is that I did a little research on this film. Um, and by research, I mean, uh, for those who don't know, True Stories was released by Criterion a few uh, years ago on a lovely uh, copy, which you can buy if you're in the UK. It's very easy to buy online. They have uh, put one of the essays that is included in the film, which is an excellent essay, and it talks about David Byrne's relationship with the theatre director Robert Wilson, who um, he worked with on Civil Wars, which was a massive unfinished, like, five-part epic that went over five different con- uh, continents. Um, but it included these things called knee plays, which, uh, if you are a fan of Philip Glass, you will know from Einstein on the Beach, uh, which I'll get to in a second, because this is relevant. But the, the the it explains, this this article explains how the concept of the knee play, these moments that are outside of the narrative that are just uh, moments of expression, if you wish, moments of, like, sort of, Songs almost in a, in a way, like songs on an album, sort of interact with this sort of wider narrative. So, one that they include is the um, there's a wonderful one for me, which is an after Spalding Gray's like speech about uh, the, the new system of work, we just we cut to a guy in an office window dancing, and it's just sort of this beautiful moment of self expression. And and there's, I think there's something. I think there is something very interesting about that there, which is these these moments of remove, which from the narrative, which are these. Um, how do I put it? Uh, I suppose in some respects they have an autistic element to them because they are just sort of letting free, if you wish, the sort of the the sort of an expression of sort of self away from a sort of a wider society, sort of enjoying the simple moment as it is, without wanting to sound overly gauche. Um, but yeah, there is something about sort of that tension between a very constrained narrative and then these moments that just want to shoot off everywhere, like uh, Byrne's wonderful opening uh, opening speech about what Virgil is and what Texas is and all the different beautiful elements that come from that.
2: Yeah, I, I was also thinking about the way in which the character of Byrne, he seems to play himself, although it's, it's a very deadpan version of himself, um, He acts as our host and our narrator. And that, I think, is is an important framing device in the film in that we see everything via him. It's not exactly through his perception, but he sort of angles our perception of the place, of the people, of the buildings, of the landscape and so forth. And I think that that that's quite a significant part of the construction of the of, of the film and it reminded me a little bit of um a discussion about the netflix series community that we had and the character of Abed, um, and the way in which it, there's a similar sort of postmodern reflexivity to abbott's version of, of of the world he looks to camera as david byrne looks to camera um he's recognizing that people are watching he's recognizing he's in an artificial construct um and with that knowledge we are with him we're drawn into his world as someone who is you know part of this artifice but also addressing us and that seemed to me a really important part of this film that we we um experience it with him and that um that that shifts the focus from autism in cinema being about a character with autism who's being observed to operating alongside this character who is, 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 is guiding us through the world. That's
1: something, I, that's something which had come to mind a lot, actually, is uh, one phrase in particular, which you mentioned, which is not about a character, it's about being led through, I it's about being led through the world, if you wish, through the eyes of an autistic individual. And that's something that um, uh, I wanted to bring up as well. And I've sort of danced about a little bit, but I was wondering if you guys had more thoughts on, which is this we've talked about um we've talked about art behind the scenes about trying to talk a little bit more about the idea of an autistic aesthetic and defining it in relation to what makes a film a lot of the options and ideas that we've had currently um uh, hollis frampton for example comes to mind quite strongly they've often been experimental films and experimental works that are outside of a narrative and commercial mainstream by which I mean, these are made by creators who are possibly autistic, uh, Lynch being another example, another another David, uh, if you will. Um, so my question I suppose is, uh, is asking, can a autistic creator, can an autistic mind function within a mainstream cinematic construct like the narrative cinema or is it fundamentally to really badly paraphrase audrey lord will the master's tools never really break down the house because there is also something there about the way in which narratives are formed are um how do i phrase it they are formed in a neurotypical manner one might say they are formed in a very specific manner which Seems to function best for neurotypical individuals. So, in what way does Burns' work challenge that? In what ways does Burns' work prove that I am absolutely barking up the wrong tree?
3: I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I mean, if this is uh, a romance film, which it sort of very, very sort of softly suggested is, uh, with John Goodman's character uh, Lewis, you know. Um, It doesn't follow the sort of um, normative structures of a romantic comedy uh, where the sort of the couple cross paths and then they bond and then they fall apart and they break some sort of intimacy and then suddenly they're reunited. Like that formula is just everywhere in every sort of romance that you can see on film. Um, And this is much more linear where he's... Sets himself a task, uh, and he's fully committed to that task, and does everything he possibly can to figure out how to resolve it. And in the last sort of moments of the film, um, he—he uh, he, well, the woman uh, of his dreams, who he marries, uh, uh, has basically received the messages he's sent out into the world, and it's—and it, there's something sort of linear about it, and problem-solving in a way that doesn't sort of engage with. Uh, the dance, let's say, of the romantic comedy structure. Um, So that's a very different way of approaching a a narrative about romance, um, which perhaps is non-neurotypical. I think it's very interesting, this character, um, let's see, (laughs) on Wikipedia, she's referred to as the lazy woman. Uh, Yeah, uh, Susie Kurtz. Essentially, she is bedbound Uh, voluntarily because she's got so much money, she doesn't need to get out of bed. That's the sort of conceit of her character. Um, But there's something also, you know, incredibly uh, neurodivergent about the idea of uh, feeling so strongly uh, against um, the sort of norm of going up and getting up and going about your world in in a sort of... uh, what we consider the day-to-day activities. Um, Yeah, so, I mean... In terms of aesthetics, I don't know, I'm thinking more really of, of narratives, but um, yeah, I think it's everything that is similar to other structures in films is given this very strong twist. Um, so I, certainly that's, something's happening here. I couldn't necessarily sum it up though.
2: I think that's a pretty interesting way of thinking about narrative structure and autism together in this book. I hadn't really put those things together you were talking about, Alex, but um, this this narrative, you're right, the narrative of love does allow the film to stage the question of communication. And the the main character, Lewis, um, played by John Goodman, as you say, is sending messages out into the world. And of course, that, that is that does structure the film. He's look he's looking for love. And he does that via TV adverts, he does it through um going to someone's house and meeting them because of, of, of that. Um, exposure, and then finally he performs, and this performance uh, is the thing that is successful. So it's televised. Someone, the woman in bed, sees him, and then we see them being married in the in the final play out. Um, so it the, that whole structure of, of looking for love, which is is the kind of classic rom com, um, is. Is set up as a quest through this particular character and and his communicative capacity and preferences. So I think that I think that is incredibly interesting. I also found it really perplexing that he, the song that this character sings about love is that everyone is looking for love, not freedom and justice. And I, I couldn't work out what that meant. Um, and I couldn't work out whether that was that, whether that was a really ironic take on the way in which love is this huge cliche in American culture that kind of clouds everyone's vision of inequality um, and political matters and and how ridiculous is this? Or whether it is actually kind of something that is just telling it like it is, you know, that people might discuss these things like freedom and justice, but actually what gets them out of bed in the morning um, is the the matter of love. So I I wonder what you thought of that.
1: I also found that 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 particular song, and that those particular looks were very strange, and uh, because because they go against what I think most people would see as the 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 not the, the paradigms of what human existence is, that what people always are looking for. Especially, I think today, I think people more than ever are looking for some form of freedom, slash and justice, rather than love. And but I think that that's part of this film's one of the films. If not charms, and one of the film's beguilingly unusual elements to it, which are either a remnant of a particular time period, which Byrne is either celebrating or criticizing, but also of uh, uh, possibly, as you were saying, it is possibly just a telling it like it is sort of thing of that bluntness of, you yeah, know, it's, it's not really this or this, it's just this. It's just this, which which sounds a lot like conversations I've had. Where it's like, well, what do you mean it's not X and Y? It's just Z. Um, but that does actually bring us on to something that um, we, brief, I think, uh, Janet mentioned earlier, which is sort of uh, um, sort of the ambiguities around it, and the ambiguities I think around technology and the commercial consumerist age, which True Stories has a very unusual. Take to, in as much as it does not seem to follow the normal route of uh, explicitly criticising uh, um, for independent films capitalism or consumerist culture, but rather seems to offer a a, a curiously almost uh, a curious celebration of the synthetic, a celebration of the artificial the the fake as something that is fundamentally comforting in my mind and something which allows for greater freedom and that's a that's a theme which comes up a lot in the film is the idea of freedom and independence and individuality so um i suppose we'll start with Varicor itself and sort of the the concepts behind that um what so what were your guys sorts of uh, thoughts about the, the the place of something like Miracle in virgil as like this very clearly benevolent tech god if you wish which feels quite different to something like uh tesla for example or elon musk that other great autistic of our age
3: Well, I mean, I think it's very much situated in a time, you know, uh, 1980s sort of uh, the first personal computers are being produced. I think Steve Jobs is even quoted at one point during the film as this like, you know, the hero (laughs) of our age or whatever. Uh, It's just before um, people had enough information to really start getting cynical about it. And I think uh, David Byrne in the 80s was a massive techno futurist and sorry, techno optimist. And was very excited about the potentials that, that I mean, um, computers could offer us. I mean, it's quite hilarious when you actually, they're talking really excitedly about these new sort of silicone chips. And then you have a look at the sort of blue, uh, the green screens with, with like wavy lines. And it looks so rubbish compared to what we've got now. So, but still, I think in that void of um knowing what these computers can do there's all this excitement about how it's going to change the world um, and i think it's i think it's quite simply interested in that and i think you see it elsewhere in burns work where he's sort of excited by the idea of um, modernization and uh, the sort of uh, indulgences of of travel and uh moving to cities from the countryside you know there's all these songs he's written about uh utopian visions of going back to the wild turning out to be disasters and actually we wouldn't just go to kfc again um and so yeah i think it's quite simply excited about uh how the world might change you know the idea that you can you can buy a prefabricated office and it's there in a week and all this kind of stuff. It, there's a sort of simple pleasure in in the excitement of the new.
2: Yeah, and I think there's something quite similar to Laurie Anderson's take on technology, which is when she's, she's making Superman and uh, Home of the Brave at, at, at the same time as this film. I, I thought there was something, just to add to what Alex has said, I thought there was something very diagrammatic about the descriptions of things that was quite techno engineering oriented in itself that that description that you've just mentioned about the metal buildings you know the metal buildings are made like this you you order them online they come it takes guys a couple of days sometimes a week to put them up you choose you know, your doors, your windows, your size, the colour, and you stick a board out the front. So, And he he does the same thing when he's describing the shopping centre, you know, and he walks us through it and he says, you know, look, there's there's all this space to walk, the temperature is this, and the time always feels like this. And it's this very sort of matter of fact, stripped back way of seeing the world that I I found it really difficult to get a a kind of, a real hold of of the tone, of the description there. Because on the one hand, it seems incredibly cynical that there's, you know, here he is stripping it all back to these practicalities that are devoid of any kind of political angle on this. You know, what has happened to tradition? What has happened to history? What has happened to all sorts of things? What's happened to people who went out and talked without buying? You know, there there are all those questions that are usually associated with the politics of the shopping mall. But he seems to give it to us in this diagrammatic way. And then to be really genuinely kind of, Aligned with people's wish to be in this space and to be with each other, and be interested in the materials of things, the the colours, the you know the very lush world that we 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 experience through him as a shopping centre.
1: I I must be extremely perverse then, because you're a you're right. It is diagrammatic, but B I loved that. I loved the diagrammatic elements of it. I found it so soothing and so simple and direct and almost refreshing in a way uh, uh, that that things are explained in this film in a way which makes to me perfect sense. uh, And I think it probably is the way I think and the way that my mind is autistically managed is that it is a lot more, it responds well to lists, figures, diagrams, well not diagrams per se, but sort of rows of facts and figures. And I think I found that the way that and it's not only the, the 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 facts and figures themselves, the idea of, you know, there's lots of space here. Or like, you know, it takes them two days sometimes because it's all prefab. It's the way that, as you can probably tell from the way that I'm speaking, it's the way that Byrne enunciates himself and enunciates these diagrammatic descriptions that I find extremely soothing and extremely sort of, it just makes sense to me in in a way that I can't really... Uh, explain because it works on such a deep level for me. So I find that really, really interesting. Is that I, I, a lot of people find those moments maybe a bit alienating, maybe a bit confusing, but for me, it's like, yeah, no, this is this is what life should be like. It's like, look, this thing is this. It has this, 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 and this. Huh, okay, cool. It's it's great in that respect. So it just felt very comforting.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. Even I didn't find it just ironic i i find it a, a really interesting and refreshing take on on the world but there's a way in which he he holds these things together you know a kind of naivety and a knowingness uh, a kind of stripped back but then incredibly sophisticated take on things is that is that way in which the film um it's so unusual to me i mean maybe as you know as a neuro so called neurotypical person or non autistic person i should say um it 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 made make me see things differently and it reminds me a bit of that kind of you know that old estrangement technique that comes through the brechtian german tradition of you know that we to refer to things, to break them down, strip them back, kind of puts us slightly at uh, a remove. And I think this, this film operates at a slight distance from things, as well as pointing us to the detail and the texture and the tone and the, and the feel of things. And I think it's incredibly clever in that respect that it holds those those things together.
3: I mean, if we are talking about sort of Brechtian distancing devices, you would suspect some sort of strong leftist message to critique... Uh... You know capitalism but i think uh david byrne in the 80s is you know uh headfirst into capitalism isn't it? i mean I, there's probably no one else in america it was treating better um in terms of consumerism you know they were the talking heads were right at the peak of their powers they seem to have every opportunity afforded to them um and even in the grammar of the film we see the sort of celebration of advertisement and television where one of the music videos um, for A Talking Against track is interspliced with sort of advertisements as the, um, the woman in bed is sort of flicking through the channels. I can't remember actually which song it is, um, but there's something about a celebration of this period, of this sort of uh, new era of, um, uh, I guess it would be neoliberalism, under Reagan and Thatcher, with greed is good and all this kind of sort of celebration of, of consumerism and capitalism that I think contrasts the idea that there's some sort of move to distance the audience away from the narrative so that we can reflect reflectively sort of um, understand how societies are built and how that might cause problems for our own social lives and our own political landscape. I mean, I, I don't see that quite working, but I do agree, Janet, that there is this sort of, sort of breaking of the fourth wall and these sort of uh, sort of odd, reflexive moments. I just don't think there's a strong politics behind it.
1: I mean, I would also agree with you there. I think the, and the, the song I think you're talking about is Love for Sale is uh in the in the music video because i was scrolling through the film last night trying to to get some notes i do think i think it is it doesn't have a very it doesn't have the clearly pointed political message that we would expect from something that is so sort of something that has a brechtian uh slant to it uh but something i did want to sort of talk about there it, it's it i think in some respects it's about the performance of capitalism and i think it's about Performance in general, which is something I wanted to sort of uh move on to in some respects, which is um a lot of the, apparently so a lot of the stories that come from the film were found by Byrne in things like um uh, the National Enquirer, the, you know, the Daily News, all of these sort of like um very hokey you know, man gives birth to monster uh, newspapers. And apparently he took a lot of those, cut them up, and then sort of rearranged them all. Uh, That's how the script started. Um, And so I was interested there in the concept of how is this sort of very strange middle America performed? And how and in what way does he focus on the, the strange minutiae of American life and it is the details again, in a very autistic way. And how, if you know, if you are aware of this director, how do you feel it relates to someone like Errol Morris, who has again a, a, a repeated fascination with the very strange minutiae of American life?
3: And sorry, Ethan, I, I know Errol Morris as a sort of like documentary, docufiction, director. I I don't, I'm not familiar with his, his interest in middle America. Can you expand a little bit on that? So I understand.
1: No, certainly. So, um, Edward Morris's work as a documentary filmmaker encompasses a number of different subjects. First, it was Vernon, which was uh, Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida. Uh, Gates of Heaven was made uh, when he found in the National Enquirer, an article about these pets being sort of carted off to, to be burned to create this new housing structure. And he's made a number of TV series where he's focused on stories that either he found in like things like the National Enquirer or very eccentric subjects. So uh, the man with the world's highest IQ or a woman who was pen pals with serial killers and something like fast, cheap and out of control is again a, de- a depiction of four very different strange stories of strange American individuals. So that's sort of where I was coming from with the the Morris uh, thing. Also, he has admitted he's a massive fan of the National Enquirer and reads it weekly, which explains a lot. So a lot of the stories in this film are taken from real news stories David Byrne found. What I'm interested in is how are these stories, how do these stories fit into... Burns' worldview of an eccentric America, so the, the woman who can't get out of bed, for example, and how is that autistic, In does that have an autistic element in terms of the focus on the strange or the unusual or the minutiae? And also, it was an excuse for me to also segue into, we should also talk about the musical segments as well, in particular, the Wild Wild Life karaoke bar which is a very unusual scene and a very unusual break from the narrative and what that sort of means in general in relation to the film.
3: So, um, I mean, to summarise your um, sort of weird America sort of comment, we're talking about like Guinness World Records vibes, you know, the the, the publications from the 90s where they had like the man with fingernails down to your... Ripley, the yeah, the
1: Ripley's Believe It or Not sort of stuff, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Okay, and and, uh, and Ethan, is your is your speculation that there's something inherently quizzical or quiz mastery sort of aesthetics around yes. gathering anomaly information?
1: Yes, I would say so, and I think there is something. I certainly felt that that collection of knowledge and that collection of inf- uh, of unusual knowledge felt very. If not felt, autistic felt very similar to how I experienced my autism, which is it it, it grabs onto the smallest potential fact or idea and then just sort of expands it outwards. And so to the point where you will know everything about one thing and then all the other things that go around it, which is sometimes brilliant and sometimes maddening because you end up knowing things about the, the poetry of Christopher Knowles that no one ever knows.
3: I mean, it's an interesting contrast between this idea that, like, the true mysteries of the world are sort of there on the surface, in the fact that, you know, we now all walk around shopping centers, and isn't that strange? Uh, combined with it's a small leap to the woman who never gets out of bed. And there's a sort of maybe there's a sort of sense of wonder and strangeness that doesn't differentiate the mundane which we could associate with neurotypical conventions and the strange in a sort of widely recognized sense in that no one else does this. There's a sort of sense of strangeness about almost everything in this film. And maybe that says something about an autistic gaze, uh, a sort of uh, slanted view on the world relative to a neurotypical hegemony.
1: I think that adds into, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that adds into maybe my favorite film, which I think I've mentioned already, which is the Wild Wild Life scene, which is a sponta- almost a spontaneous karaoke, but it's not even karaoke, it's lip syncing karaoke at a at a bar. And they perform Wild Wild Life, which is one of my favorite Talking Heads songs. And there is this sort of it's it's such a bizarre sequence because from a neurotypical point of view it's why are these people getting up on a stage? Why are these people being cheered for lip syncing and doing doofy dance moves? But for an autistic person, it's for me in particular, it was just, this is really beautiful. This is really, really beautiful. You're becoming one with the music. You're interacting as like this large social group in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. You're enjoying the the, the pleasure of the music. You're enjoying the pleasure of the moment. And so I found that really thrilling and exciting to be honest and so I think there is I think there is something there about the delight in the everyday which is a subject we've come up with a lot the delight in the strange and the delight in the quizzical um which I found really refreshing to be honest
3: um I was just so thrown off by the fact that the DJ announces to the room is like right now we're going to do some lip syncing everybody come up on stage and just do a few lines from this song (laughs) and i thought like wow this this dj has an incredible amount of power over this room and i think in reality that would just (laughs) it could never happen um and so what i was thinking about a lot is like is this just an ineffective musical where the sort of conceits to break into song they try and explain it as well as Whereas in a musical, it just sort of happens spontaneously. Whereas here, there's the burners trying to give some explanation, but they're utterly unconvincing, and so uh, it has this sort of very odd feeling to it all.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's it was also my favourite scene from the film. I I thought it. it was just electric and i i loved it air karaoke um it's what a concept um but i wonder if it also connects with some of the things we've talked about before around um kind of mimicry the the power of of mimicry mimicking the way that uh autistic people are are kind of forced into a position sometimes of, of mimicking certain behaviors and masking. And this seemed to kind of take that idea and, and, and run with it in a different direction, that like the some sort of pleasure of, of performance and mimicry. And I think performance is a really big part of this film. I think I'm a bit influenced by having read some stuff in the last week about Burns saying that um, as a as a child, he had... Found it difficult to um, directly express himself, and had found performance a much, a much easier way of doing that. Um, it, I, I, and I and I think that that, that runs through the film too. Do, and did other people have thoughts about that?
1: I mean, you make absolute sense because uh, that probably that probably does touch absolutely on the heart of why I loved that scene. Because I think like Lightburn like for me, performance was something I loved as a kid. Uh, I did drama a lot. I did a lot of summer school drama. Um, I even did a bit of musical theatre, but we don't talk about that. Um, but but it was, it was that element of, yeah, performance felt easier than connecting to the real world. And in some respects, the performance was enjoyable because you controlled the atmosphere, you controlled the environment. And I think that there is something to that. In the the mimicry and in the in the lip sync as well, which is that these are people who are going on stage and briefly holding the audience's attention in whatever way that may appear, uh, including a guy who I could have sworn looked like Meatloaf. Uh, there was a there was a man in a white white suit who looked so like Meatloaf it was slightly unsettling. Um, but yeah, it's the but it's it's I I I love lip syncing. I love that sort of like mimicry element. And I think that Byrne touches on sort of the the pleasure of it, the pleasure of sort of being integrated, if you wish, with something artificial or mechanical in terms of a, a song recording. And certainly that's a theme which comes up, and we've talked about a lot already, is that sense of integration with the mechanical and the synthetic and the real pleasure and excitement that can come from that. Admittedly, it's not something that people share these days because of fears around, you know, AI and cybernetics, but it's something that's sort of palpable here, I feel, all all the way through True Stories.
2: As you were talking then, Ethan, I was reminded, not for the first time in our discussion this morning, of... of David Lynch's Blue Velvet. I've just had a look and it's in fact the same year as this. And when you were talking about lip syncing, I was thinking about the scene where Frank, played by Dennis Hopper, lip syncs in that film. I mean, it's truly terrifying um, because he's so sinister and violent. Um, but yes, the power of lip syncing, which which runs also through Mulholland Drive. Um, and also in Blue Velvet, we have the kind of slightly naive distancing narrator who carries us through the film, uncovering these strange things about a world that seems on the surface very, very obvious. So I think there are some real connections between the Davids, as I think Alex was saying earlier. Um, I wanted to just just ask you um for for one more point or one, one more favorite moment or line from the film. We're coming up to the end of our time here. Um there was, there was one for me in this, um, so if I may, I'll start this, um, where the narrator is addressing, I, I can't remember actually exactly what he's talking about. I think we get, we've got a scene of the landscape at this moment. And he says, you know, things that never had names before are now easily described. And this, it, I was trying to catch up with that thought. As the film ran on, and I and I couldn't quite get hold of it, but it seemed very beautiful and profound, and I didn't quite know what he was referring to. Whether he was referring to consumerism, the way that things are packaged and labelled and given a logo, uh, or was could it even be thinking about um, the yeah uh, you know, could it could it be thinking about image making itself that somehow it allows us to get hold of things and name them and talk about them as we are this morning
3: so um i one of my sort of hot takes on autism relative to my own neurodivergence as someone who's schizoaffective is that i believe that i'm inclined towards a post-structuralist way of thinking about the world i quite like relish the idea that um everything is slippery and nothing is really fixed and that really reflects my own mindset of sort of never really quite being in a sort of stable position and I've come across, uh, autistic filmmakers at networking events. Um, and we had, um, well, one person I'm thinking of in particular, and we had this big discussion afterwards about, um, sort of socializing and, and this guy was basically explaining his very strongly structuralist, um, approach to Understanding social interactions and the rules and behaviors and sort of almost flow diagrams of what was meant to happen next, and then this happens. And I was quite struck by it. Um, I'm really only talking about one individual here, but I've extrapolated it out into a theory that might not be very substantial. Um, but I think what David Byrne was saying there was like, don't you love structuralism? Don't you love language? Isn't it such an incredible tool that helps us easily comprehend the world? I think that's what he ends on. It's like, it makes it easier for communication. And uh, it just seemed to be this sort of celebration of, uh, of structuralism and a way of really comprehending things. I
1: actually agree with that theory i i i agree with what you're saying also about what burn is saying that i think it's entirely that i think it's isn't it nice that we can taxonomize things more we can understand things more we can communicate more in a way that that's just so refreshing um i feel like a, a tv commercial by saying that but it's probably very appropriate yeah um I think, I think my understanding of autism certainly falls into that structuralist approach, and that's probably why I find structuralism and the idea of code fascinating, although they can be choking at points. Um, but to get back to what Janet said, Janet asks, what was my favourite scene in the film? And if I'm honest, I think it was, there's a number of choices. They're more towards the front of the film. But I'm going to I tell I'm gonna tell you one character. There are two two bits which stick out. There's the first bit right at the beginning where David Burns' character is taken into Vericorp and he's given a talk by the software engineer who uh, shows him around the, the the place and he speaks in this beautifully soft cadence about the place. And you can tell he loves it. And, you know that the poetry of machinery and uh it's a really quite a, it's almost a spiritual thing for him that this this work that he does with these these huge te- uh chips and you know tape machines which we consider now to be archaic and there was a bit of me which went yeah i really get it i really get it and i think it's something to do with the fact that as i've mentioned on this podcast more than once i adore cars uh the the, the objects well the film's pretty good as well um and I find that they have almost a spiritual life to themselves. I find them to be very almost, almost uh living beings at points that so so deeply are they entrenched in my psychology. And I think that there was for me, there was a moment of, yeah, it's not just me who thinks this. This film also is like, yeah, it's cool to think this. And there's also the beautiful fact that it's they're on this sort of um I think it's, I'm not sure what the flooring it is, but it has this very specific, almost metallic tone to it as they put their feet, you know, their feet move uh, as they're walking down the thing. I'm doing it terribly, but noise. And I just think so beautiful about that. And the second thing I really want to mention, because I, I, I feel like I'll betray myself if I've not, and that's the presence of Spalding Gray as Veracort's chief, engineer he appears in two scenes one is the dinner the dinner table scene which is amazing and then there is him using his hands to open the uh the talent show which is an amazing scene just for just sort of how bizarre his like movements are uh, you can't see me uh listen but i'm actually doing a lot of movements now like him i i love spalding gray i he was an big inspiration to me when I was a teenager. His way of talking about himself, his way of performing himself, his monologues influenced a lot of my early works. Well, one particular big early work of mine. Um, and so seeing him there was a really, really moving moment for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, sadly he's no longer with us. He took his own life in 2004, very, very sadly but he is an artist and a writer and a human
3: being who I really, really love, and so it was really nice to see him. Ethan, you took my favourite scene from me. <laughs> oh, the hands! Oh,
1: no! Oh, I'm so sorry, you can talk about the hands, because they're just so amazing.
3: Well, it just... I was just like, this is stimming. What? Like, this character is stimming. Oh, my
1: God, it is. It's st- yeah, it's stimming. <laughs>
3: um, I didn't have much more of a hot take than that, but... Um... Yeah, it just seemed. Uh, but I, I, thought also, you know, the relationship between Earl and Kay, the his wife, um, Kay, having hosted this utterly bizarre fashion show, which I feel like was just pure parody. Like, I think everybody there would have known. I mean, the I mean, <laughs> fashion shows can be quite ridiculous, um, uh, but it seemed very much like a knowing sort of ridiculousness in this. Uh, sequence. But um, I think the, the dinner scene between K&L, where, you know, rumour was spread earlier, I think, uh, by John, John Goodman saying, um, you know, they haven't actually spoken to each other in years, they just speak through other people. And it was sort of illustrating how the children act as intermediaries between the parents. Um, and again, it seemed like a sort of critique of a, um, a what can be sort of easily presented as a neurotypical sort of bizarre phenomena, the idea of sort of falling out to the point where you don't, um, aren't able to sort of communicate uh, directly and you need to go through these sort of social dances of how to um, uh, get around the sort of. Uh, I I don't even know how to put it into words it's it's so bizarre but I've also felt it you know when you don't want to speak because there's too much tension in the background um and so you find other ways of communicating um but I can see how from the outside it would just look totally bizarre
1: it's it's a bizarre scene. um them not talking to each other but and you're right and in, in, in a neurotypical world it would be about tension but it never seems like a tense interaction between them it never seems like a tense moment or that there's any anguish or anger between them i mean yeah he doesn't go to a fashion show which is probably not good if you're married uh not that i would know i'm not married um but yeah it just sort of seems like this is the most appropriate way for them to communicate and it weirdly works um in like the most bizarre way possible. It kind of just worked for them. Um, yeah, I don't really know. What well, else. I
3: mean, isn't that interesting? It's the sort of surface mm. appearance of the interaction um, yeah. without the sort of uh, non-verbal yeah, subtext uh, included in its presentation.
1: No, that's very true, actually. I think that's, yeah, you, you, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, I just love that scene. I just love him throwing the lobster. Oh, what a great scene! Oh, <laughs> Janet, you're going to have to stop us doing time.
2: <laughs> I was just about to stop you actually. That uh, that was a really nice description of that scene. Um, absolutely spot on, I think, about what might appear function dysfunctional, and then it works. Definitely. I just wanted to end with reference to um, a reading that's online by. Uh, an autistic autistic blogger Luis atillo franco who um has written about this film quite a long uh blog called people like us and i think it's it certainly informed my reading here and i found it really interesting if you
1: can send that to me later i'd really like to read that
2: yeah sure and give it a plug here um okay thanks everyone
1: there was was everyone. happy trails everybody thanks for listening
2: bye now
0: You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary University of London and the Welcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is "Waterfall" by Meter, used under a Creative Commons Attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.